The gathering of statistics of various kinds is vital to our understanding the world around us, but some stats can communicate sensitive data about individuals even when statistical methods have been thoughtfully designed. Data privacy is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me, as always, is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today is a repeat visitor, Claire McKay-Bowen. Bowen is a Principal Research Associate in the Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population and leads the Statistical Methods Group at the Urban Institute. Her research focuses on developing and assessing the quality of differentially private data synthesis methods and science communication. In 2021, the Committee of Presidents of Statistical Societies identified her as an emerging leader in statistics for her technical contributions and leadership to stats and the field of data privacy and confidentiality. Bowen is also the author of a significance article on the art of data privacy. Claire, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you for having me again. I, I must have done something right from the last time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this article that's in that's in significance that I know is an excerpt from your book is really so interesting. And I wondered if you could just talk us through how you decided to talk about data privacy through the lens of this particular piece of artwork. I can't take full credit for this idea. So when I was an intern at the Census Bureau, I attended a talk, and I can't remember who it was, so I wish I could give better credit for this person. They used a art piece of artwork where they took the pixels and started kind of fuzzing them out a little bit to kind of represent the idea of data privacy. And so I thought, well, why not use that example, but take it a step further to help explain other data privacy techniques. Because at the time, this person was just focused on thinking about noise infusion through the term uh, or privacy definition, differential privacy, because that was the big focus at the time at Census Bureau trying to push that out. Uh, this is all back in 2016 for, for those who are curious, like when this all happened. So I... I then, when trying to figure out how to best explain an audience who had no mathematical background for my book, I that's why I took a piece of art. Now, how come a Seurat painting? Uh, one is I actually love pointillism paintings. It's like one of my favorite piece like techniques in art. And I also was trying to pick, think of a piece of art that a lot of people knew about, and it was also. Uh, open to the public for access for the digital rights. So it was nice that the Chicago Arts Institute had all their artwork uh, publicly available. So that was really nice to to be able to pick that piece of art. It is really interesting to sort of see in the article, like sort of as you work through the various privacy approaches, like what it, the distortions to the artwork to sort of think through and visualize sort of those concepts in ways that I, as someone who is concerned about data privacy, but who is not immersed in it, it really kind of helped me conceptualize what you were getting at. Yeah, I, I, the other thing I, I found really nice about this painting, I mean, other than I, I got I had the opportunity to see it at the Art Institute, too, so that was really cool to be able to visit Chicago and to see it. Uh, by the way, I, I was inspired to see it even before reading your paper, but I, I think reading your paper, I, I thought this was a brilliant selection, and I, I, I really loved how this 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 paper evolved, but but it was really cool because I was thinking you also have not only this the way you're going to be adjusting this this image, but that you have a population of people on this you know that are out enjoying this day, and I thought that was sort of an opportunity to really 
play with these these ideas of kind of capturing an image after starting to do some kind of adjustments. So so how about talking us through maybe one of these these ideas? There's certainly a lot of ideas about, you know, masking some information but yet not but keeping the whole picture that you use. So which what's one of your favorites in terms of its impact on this image? Oh, I think the coloring is a really big one because with pointillism, for those who don't know, it's basically taking the point of the, the paintbrush with one color and collecting like different dots to to create the full image. And so you get kind of different highlights and uh, at least when I did a little bit of pointillism painting, sometimes when you mix together some of the colors, you get a tightly different tone. So then you can get a different kind of like highlighting of the, the imagery, or at least for the painting. And so when I say changing the color, one of the techniques is called generalization or categorization, or sometimes called thresholding. So there's a lot of different terms, but hopefully I encompass most of the ones, or I guess another one is aggregation. So this is to take really smaller groups of, of people or other kind of records and putting them to a higher grouping. So a really classic example, I believe I used this one for the paper, was for education. So you can imagine there's different ways that somebody might get educational attainment. You can think of like high school, GAD, some college, community college, bachelor's, bachelor, uh, so the bachelor's of arts, science, and so on and so forth. But that could get too fine grain. You can identify people. So you kind of aggregate those individuals up to saying like, did they complete high school or not? Did they go into a bachelor's or a four-year program or a two-year program and things like that? And so the analogy I used with the painting is that instead of having all those different kind of cool shades that you might have with the pointillism, then you just have only now one color green, one color blue, and one color red. And so if you look at the image created in the article, you still get the figures, you still kind of figure out that they're in a park because you can still see the trees and the grass. It looks like there's still a lake in the background too, but it's kind of distorted because it's like these extreme now colors of only one green and one blue. So, you know, one question that's, that's that sort of the back us up a little bit is, you know, what's, what's wrong with identifying people? You know, why is this, why is this important to do? That's a great question because sometimes I hear some individuals say like, well, don't they, doesn't the general populace know that this is for the great benefit of society, knowing exactly how many people are in a certain area, like going to keep playing on the education piece here because that's been really important to figure out allocating resources for different schools, figure out how many substitute teachers you need, figure out how, well, maybe we need to divide up the school district because there's like more children coming into the area and things like that. But at the same time, you don't need to know or perhaps some individuals won't feel comfortable knowing that there are so many kids in a neighborhood because what about stalkers? Or figuring out the fact that in some data sets that we're collecting or figuring out who are from single parent households, that can make it very more targeting for certain financial situations. So it gets a little bit tricky there because you do want to help these individuals, but at the same time, you can't try to expose them to like furthered harm. So it gets into a little interesting even further because... I said about like single parents, well, some individuals in certain households, it's indicative of like their single parent household and more likely from certain underrepresented communities. And they're, they're more successful to attacks. There's a lot of research showing this too, that if you're from certain kind of communities, you're more susceptible to certain financial hits. Or again, like I said, different kind of privacy attacks, like you think about scams or even like financial leakage from, I keep hearing like credit card companies or <laughs> I'm trying to think of like more recent data breach, but... 
there's so much data that is publicly accessible. How has that changed or has it changed the conversation around data privacy? Oh, it's changed the conversation quite a bit because there's there's a lot of people very concerned with, oh, now we have social media, for instance. That's, that's a lot of extra information. So a lot of, like for consumer data, some of the private co companies might make it proprietary, so they keep it close to their chest. But some of them, they do publish their statistics or other data sets, maybe for the greater public good, or for some. sometimes they do competitions, so other researchers can contribute to some sort of improving the algorithms. Uh, so I'm kind of alluding to something like the Netflix prize. Uh, that's a very classic example. It's a very old one, but it's a very salient one because... Netflix did release a data set to improve the recommendation system. This was back in 20, 2007 to 2009. And the thing is, is that they didn't realize you could attack their data set using IMDB data because there's similar ratings. So that's an example of public data being available to use to be against a data set that was anonymized and supposedly protected. Now, the follow-up then is that you as a Probably the average person will think, oh, who cares if anybody knows I gave five stars for the latest uh, Top Gun movie. That was so cool, right? But that data set later on, there was a lawsuit against Netflix back in, I believe, 2010, because it was right after the announcement of the winner, uh, where the data could be used to figure out if somebody was LGBTQ. Yeah, so that's that was a big issue. And so this goes into, like, you're not sure how somebody might attack the data with other data sets or what malicious things they could use with the data set. So something so innocent like movie rating data set, it has alarmed other entities, especially the federal statistical agencies, about what information they can release, even though there's an obvious public good. Yeah, it, it, it seems like, the, you know, if, if we just back up for a second, talk about one of those, those, those key principles that you mentioned in your, your paper and have talked about in other contexts, this balancing of, of kind of privacy versus data utility. You know, just what do you, what, what kind of information, what kind of accuracy do you require to make decisions versus, you know, protecting the respondents, the uh, anonymity of respondent or kind of the identification of respondent. So can, can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you don't necessarily need kind of this individual granularity to have something that would still be of, of utility for decision making? Yeah, that's a great question because I am often asked, like, how do you know you made something accurate enough? Uh, maybe you don't need that accurate information, but maybe you do. And so just like when I said it's hard to predict how someone might attack the data, it's also hard to predict all the use cases for the data. But you do try, and I say you as in those who have the data set, who are responsible for the data itself, will try to figure out exactly what are the, the salient use cases. Uh, what are the use cases that are needed for that data set to make that important decision making. And so I think I use this example in my book, but I'm not sure if it's back in the article, because again, it's an excerpt of the book. So well, uh, I talk about myself being an Asian American and knowing how many Asian Americans are in a certain area, it might be important to figure out, well, during COVID-19, a lot of Asian American owned businesses were hit harder than others. So you need to know if there is generally Asian American population in an area, but you don't necessarily need to know who are East Asian versus Middle Eastern versus like other areas or Pacific Islander, right? But then you can one could say like, well, maybe for some use cases, you do need to know that finer grain detailed area to figure out that there is a big difference if somebody is 
Japanese, Chinese, Korean versus Filipino versus being from uh, certain other regions of, of Asia. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Claire McKay-Bowen about data privacy. Claire, one of the examples in uh, this excerpt from your book, Insignificance, is um, exploring data swapping, which is one of the ones, as I was scrolling through this to prepare, I really caught my eye because it's, it's these squares of images pulled from around the painting that are kind of moved around. And I guess, could you talk a little bit about sort of what data swapping is and how that might actually play out in a in a study in order to sort of still create usable data while protecting privacy. Yeah, data swapping is actually a technique that was primarily used to protect the 1990 census data all the way till the 2010 data. So when I say 1990 to 2010, this is the big decennial data set, the one that everyone was talking about earlier and for 2020, because that data is used for redistricting among many other census data products. But that was really more top of mind because the first data product that comes out from any of the decennial data products, again, is the you might hear the term PL, that's short for basically the redistricting data. There's like some numbers that go after it and I'm going to totally forget it's like the, what the actual numbers are, but that doesn't matter. So for the, the for data swapping, why was it the primary disclosure avoidance method is that, so at a high level, data swapping tried to find individuals who had very similar characteristics throughout the United States, but swap them in regions that they made more sensitive. So I guess, again, using myself an example as being an Asian American. So I, myself, I kind of stick out growing up in Idaho. So for those who don't know, it's a very rural state. There is, I think they might've hit 2 million people in the whole state, but I think they're still under 2 million. So I grew up in an area of 3000 people in a whole uh, town. So I stick out pretty well uh, as an Asian American. And so maybe my family might get swapped with somebody else who is in Washington, D.C., where it's like more representative to have Asian Americans. Uh, But then some of our information, because we're being swapped based on certain kind of characteristics. So let's just like for it, for the example here is that if we're primarily an Asian American household and we got swapped. And so maybe when we got swapped, it was like, oh, the whole unit is Asian American. But for those who don't know, I actually have a stepfather who is white. So being swapped over to the United United States, excuse me, to Washington, D.C., maybe our household then shows that my mother, my stepfather, and myself being swapped with maybe a family of four who are all Asian American. And then maybe some people who lived in the town would be like, that's weird because we all know about Claire's family. (laughs) But maybe at the high level of the data set, when somebody's analyzing it, they're like, oh, well, we know there's an Asian American family. That's all we needed to know in order to figure out some of the statistics or allocating certain resources. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the, the using this, uh, this particular painting is kind of a, a, a backdrop for illustration. Also illustrates kind of the idea of, of how, much, how much of this addition of noise or kind of addition of masking can you, can you add before you lose, Im- you lose the image. So I, I imagine that's a real challenge for some of the work that you're doing to think about, you know, what, how much of these various aspects of whether it's thresholding or data swapping or rounding or these top and bottom coding, all these other these techniques that you mentioned there, you know, how do you know that you've got just that sweet spot of enough? Yeah, it's a great question. So we'll focus on the swapping a little bit. So there could be different rates of swapping. And so if anybody who's listening to this was like, oh, I'm kind of curious what Census Bureau did, that's actually a held guarded secret. They don't tell you the rate that they swapped. So one of the things that uh, people will do is they'll try and test out different rates of swapping. 
and then they have to think about what is their threshold for what they define as being a disclosure risk and what is the threshold for accuracy or data utility or uh, quality. So these terms get used interchangeably, but you can get the idea that there is this innate trade-off. Like you said earlier, uh, and I talk about this throughout the whole my whole book, is that that tension, they, they pose one another, but there is that sweet spot, as you said, but determining that gets really tricky. So sometimes people think of it like a curve, right? You have a graph, you can imagine, where x-axis would be like disclosure risk, and then there's a y-axis of, of the data quality, and there's some sort of curve. Maybe it's not like a linear, it's typically not linear, it's not one to one. Usually there's just, there's like an inflection point, and some people are like, okay, I want to hit that inflection point. Or sometimes they think, well, no, the accuracy of the data is far more important than sometimes with the privacy. And so then maybe you might push yourself a little bit further along that graph to figure out where it is higher accuracy, but still has like a little bit of that privacy or guarantee that you want. Or sometimes maybe the data set is just too sensitive. So you think, okay, if I just released some information, not to like find your grain detail, but some of it, then in that way, people actually have an idea maybe of the structure of the data set before, for example, getting act, try to request access for the full data set. Now, this is, I think, going a little bit beyond what you're asking here, but I think it's really important to note that some data sets are released for certain kind of utility, and it might just be the structure of the data set where somebody else, another researcher, says, hey, I actually need to know more finer grain detail to make certain kind of policy decisions. So I'm requesting formal access to the data. And they're only able to do that because there is some sort of public file where they can say, hey, it's not as accurate as I need for what I need to do. So I, I can well imagine that, you know, for, for people that are making these decisions, for, for you and your colleagues, that, that if you have access to the full data set, you can compare, you know, kind of the summaries of interest and then start to look at various constructed data sets that reflect some of these data privacy interventions, if you will, and then see as, if you're, as you get closer and closer to matching the summaries based upon that, the degree of modification, you can find that sweet spot just by analysis. Is that, is that part of the, the exercise that, that you're involved with? Yeah, so part of the exercise is to apply some of what we consider the benchmarks for quality. You apply it to this, the confidential data set you apply it to the altered data set or statistics you want to release and kind of say like, well, would us adding noise change people's decisions? So there can be, you can imagine that in some cases, if you make the data so noisy that somebody is going to make an improper public policy decision making, that's really, really bad. And so there's actually an interesting trade-off here where is it better to not release the data at all? It's very, very private, but there's no information. Or is it to release data? So there's basically two extremes you can think with the data. You could either not release any information, which is super private, but it's not at all useful. The other version is to release some form of the statistic, usually pretty noisy or aggregated up or any of the techniques that I described. But you have to kind of think about, well, is it actually better that I release that information? Because if it's so noisy that somebody's going to make an improper decision making from it, then maybe it was better to go back and say, release no information. But there are obvious trade-offs for both scenarios. And so it's actually one of the things we're working at at Urban was figuring out what is that point for people where they'd rather not actually have access to data because they would make bad decisions. 
Your book is Your Privacy in a Data-Driven World. So I wanted to make sure we got the, the title of that, Protecting Your Privacy in a Data-Driven World. And I wonder, Claire, as you've been talking, is there something that you see kind of on the horizon when it comes to data privacy that people, whether it's statisticians or journalists or just everyday people, should be more aware of or, or sort of keeping an eye out for? That's a great question, uh, especially because I keep getting asked, like, what are, like, what is the future? What should we focus on? What are kind of the, the salient topics? So I'll try to cover broadly the ones I think is most interesting. And just to like be clear, there's a lot, lot of interesting topics, and we just don't have the time to go through everything, especially in detail. So one of the big things is, and it's main motivation for this book is communication. So I think a lot of times when you ask somebody, it's like, hey, what do you think of data privacy? Or what do, what is data privacy to you? Most people think of other things, but the the topic that I'm specifically uh, been researching in, which is releasing sensitive information that could be made for better decision making, uh, for like statistical work, or you can definitely think of public policy work, right? Because I work with a lot of administrative or federal statistical data sets here, and so just trying to communicate that this is a field that impacts lots of people and is important to figure out like the future of data access. And the, one of the tricky things is that going into the second challenge, of like with the communication piece, is the education. So for those who don't know, most courses that are taught in the United States uh, for data privacy are mostly done in computer science at a graduate level. And so despite the fact that statistical disclosure control, which is the field of data privacy and confidentiality, has been existed for decades, it, we were not a big player in, in that discussion because we're, it's so dominated, the field itself, by computer science. And so actually it's been like a big argument point where a lot of statisticians who work in it because we're like, we're a little frustrated knowing that our work is not as impacting or helping impact the conversation as much as it should be uh, because there are different perspectives and different priorities that people have. And so why not make sure that you have more perspectives beyond just computer science? And so you kind of see that with the literature is that there's some of the focus on the research is really Really driven by uh, that particular field. Not to say that we shouldn't consider that, of course, right? They are contributing quite a bit and they have advanced the field, but it's become a problem. So with that communication and education piece, we really should be thinking about how are we going to educate other fields than just those who are just in this niche area, considering the impacts of data access that thinks about social science, economics, demography, so on and so forth. Because and I think this was in our other podcast, uh, the, this episode I was in with my colleague, we asked the question for our other article uh, about if you were asked what communication or other kind of resource material would you recommend for machine learning versus data privacy, people would have a very different response. So that's that lack of that communication piece. And so for the education, like how do you teach the next generation if you have lack of these resources? Uh, I guess the other part that I really want to talk about is the data equity side. So data equity and data privacy go in hand in hand because in order, well, depends on, again, there's a lot of different definitions of data equity, but one interpretation is having equal representation in the data set. And so certain individuals are more easily identifiable in the data. And so when you are more easily identifiable, therefore you need to protect those individuals more. So we're going back to what I just said about is it better to not have certain people in the data set because there's too identifiable or to make them very noisy. So you kind of misrepresent those individuals. And that goes into this data equity piece because if there's a community 
that is really important that you need to target with certain kind of policy decisions, then if they're not present, then you're not going to make the right one. So I know I talked about this in my book with the Navajo Nation. At some point, I believe it was like May of 2020, their per capita, they were impacted by COVID-19 far more than New York City. And part of it was because the communication that people were spreading around for the health policy of like, wash your hands for 20 seconds does not work when you're in an area where over 30% of the people don't have running water. So that's the part that you have to think about is that if these people are not properly represented in the data, you're not going to help them as much as you think you're going to. You know, as, as you were talking about communication and education, I, I was also thinking about not, not just sort of training the next generation of people that will work in this arena, but also helping people understand that if you respond to this survey, your, your responses will not be identifiable. I mean, as a way to kind of increase trust and also increase likelihood of participation, especially in a, in a time when you think maybe my data will be used in some nefarious way. So have you seen any kind of impact of these descriptions or assurances of data privacy in terms of responding to surveys or in terms of people engaging with these, these queries? Yeah, I think the best example would be the Census Bureau, because when they do those surveys for, let's say, the American Community Survey or the Current Population Survey, they say that your responses will be confidential. Uh, when we report them out, they'll be altered. I can't remember the exact wording, but they, they make those assurances because those data are protected by law. And so making sure, like you said, to guarantee those protections, to make sure people feel more comfortable responding is very important, especially given certain kind of histories. So... Sometimes I'm surprised people don't know this, but I'm just going to say the fact that one of the reasons why the Census Bureau has to be very thoughtful about this is that there has been misuse of their data before during World War II. This is actually how the United States was able to identify who were Japanese American and put them into internment camps, which I've actually been told by a few people that that's the reason why they don't respond to census surveys is because of this mistrust with the Census Bureau. They refuse to respond to any of the surveys. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Claire, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Claire. Thanks for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. 